From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics review Disney's new combination CGI animation and live-action animal movie, The One and Only Ivan. The lives of famous inventors are re-envisioned in Tesla, starring Ethan Hawke and Kyle MacLachlan. The song you're hearing now figures prominently in the Michael Almereta film. The documentary Coup 53 takes us back to the 1953 U.S.-U.K. collaborative effort to overthrow the Prime Minister of Iran. And the drama Words on Bathroom Walls is based on a young adult novel and stars Charlie Plummer and Taylor Russell. It's Film Week right after NPR News. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us this week. The movies keep coming, even as production in so many cases is stalled or canceled. We're joined this week by critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com, and she co-hosts Breakfast All Day, the podcast. Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, and Angie Hahn, Deputy Entertainment Editor at Mashable, where she's also film critic. We begin with the new Disney film, a combination of CGI animation and live action, The One and Only Ivan. The film is directed by Thea Sherrick, Mike White, the screenwriter. Charles, what do you think of The One and Only Ivan? Well, this is our second Animals in a Zoo That's Fallen on Hard Times movie with Danny DeVito as Morris the Explainer in the last month. And it's better than Animal Crackers, but I think it has some real problems. It's very, very talky. Uh, They also are basically trying to put together elements, although it's based on a true story. There are bits of Toy Story, there are bits of Dumbo, little pieces of other films in there. And they don't want to have a villain. So although the animals talk about humans are so cruel, um, Brian Craston's character, I guess it is, and the other people aren't cruel. Uh, They're just animals are in this show. They're not being abused or mistreated. There's also a a white rabbit with a black actor's voice, very much like the one in um, the Secret Life of Pets films. The CG is okay, but they make one really big mistake. At the end of the film, they show you footage of the real gorilla on which the story is based. And as soon as you see that move, it has so much more weight, so much more presence, a different cadence, and a face that's so much more expressive, you realize, oh, we kind of got shortchanged, didn't we? Um, it's okay for families, but I don't think there's anything great or new here. We're talking about the new Disney film, The One and Only Ivan. Christy, what did you think? Well, it's trying to get its arms around a lot simultaneously, and that is the problem. You know, a lot of Pixar movies achieve this so well where they can appeal to adults and kids at the same time. Um, but here it's, it's not really sure what kind of story it's trying to tell because it's about these animals in captivity yearning to be free. It's about, as Charles mentioned, this true story of this incredible gorilla who expressed himself through art. And that that meaty nugget that's so interesting about this character becomes sort of a subplot, becomes an afterthought. 
Um, and it is this un- uneasy mix of really heady notions about the significance of freedom and the poignancy of the wilderness. But then you have like dog fart jokes, you know, and Shaka Khan provides the voice of this chicken who literally makes a why did the chicken cross the road joke. So it's trying to be like cutesy and kind of wacky for little kids, but also substantive. And it never really finds that balance. It's, it's amazing that Mike White wrote this, veteran screenwriter Mike White, who's done everything from Chuck and Buck to School of Rock. And there's just, it's an uneasy mix going on here. Yeah, does Chaka Khan uh, get to sing or or not? Just the voice? No, there is, but there is one line where she says something like "I feel for you." I can't recall what song. Okay, it is. It's one of her own songs. It's super corny. The one and only Ivan Angie. I'm not ashamed to admit that I laughed quite a bit at that. Why did the chicken cross the road joke? It's very silly, but in a way where you know I, I I was going for it. But otherwise, I really agree a lot with what a lot of uh, Charles and Chrissy have said which is that it just feels like the film doesn't quite know what it wants to be. And I think the biggest problem is that it brushes up against some really thorny territory regarding animal captivity and freedom. And there is real pathos in Ivan's realization that the only life he's ever known has is one that's always robbed him of his freedom. And yet it just seems to lack the teeth to really go there and take this idea as far as it needs to go. Uh, Disney's Dumbo, I think, shared some of the similar themes and, and at, with that film I felt it was too manipulative and making you feel really awful about the element elephant's predicament but Ivan seems to go almost in the other direction and doesn't go far enough in trying to make you feel for these characters and to some extent I guess maybe we should have expected this because it's clearly in a film aimed at little kids it doesn't even feel like one of those Pixar movies where it's supposed to be for quote-unquote everyone uh, but it just it just feels a little bit disappointing it it's Themes are worn so lightly that I don't think there's going to be much in it for anyone older than a really small child. And but also, I don't think any really small children are really going to be able to pick up on it. The one and only Ivan. It's streaming on Disney Plus rated PG. Tesla, which tells uh, the story of Nikola Tesla's life, the noted inventor Ethan Hawke stars. The film is written and directed by Michael Almereda. Charles. Well. This sort of is to Tesla what Hugo was to George Melies. It's sort of a biography, but they don't trust their subject. They don't trust their audience. So they do all these cutesy, affected little bits. Instead of telling us, here was a man who was a brilliant man, very likely a genius, who had all these fascinating ideas, these amazing inventions, uh, was frustrated in many ways, and instead were interrupted by, I guess it's Eve Hewson's character, uh, sitting in Victorian drag at a desk with a laptop telling us who gets how many hits on Google if you look them up and how you look them up. And the Tesla's ideas, his conflicts with Edison, uh, his visions are far more interesting than this movie. T- Tesla, Angie, what do you think? In theory, I love the idea of what it seems like it's trying to do. Uh, Someone as someone as creative and brilliant as Tesla surely deserves a biopic that is not afraid to be unconventional and not isn't afraid to swing for the fences. But in practice, it just didn't work for me at all. It spends so much time analyzing who he is and what it what he means that I never actually felt like I got to know him. And not only that, but all these little flourishes that Charles mentioned sometimes gets in the way of even being able to understand the story itself. Like I felt like I had a better understanding of what had happened here because I'd seen the current war before, which is a movie I didn't 
really care about that much for either, but at least there I understood what was happening. Uh, and Ethan Hawke, his performance is a little too restrained, I think, to make up for that. Ironically, though, the one thing I the one thing I kind of liked was Eve Hewson. I'm not sure the device works, but she herself is such an engaging screen presence. It, if uh, she just she just every time she's on screen, it feels a little bit more lively. Like if the if Tesla could charitably describe be described as dreamy, it feels like her scenes are the only ones where she's awake. And I kind of wish the movie had been about her or even more about her relationship to him. Tesla, the film Christie. I really dug this way more than Charles and Andy did, and I liked all those flourishes. I love when uh, a filmmaker will try to do a biopic from a, a really out-there perspective. Michael Almereda, 20 years ago, did this really cool, really daring modern-day Hamlet with Ethan Hawke in the title role, and he's been in a couple of films for Michael Almereda. But I like the playfulness of it. I like the anachronism. There's a really cool use of Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears, which is really unexpected, and the movie does kind of grind to a halt for it, but it's so mesmerizing that I really dug that moment. Um, yeah, this does cover a lot of the same kind of ground as the current war last year, and so you have you know, Kyle McLaughlin as... Edison, and you have um, Jim Gaffigan as Westinghouse this time. And I like Jim Gaffigan playing different kinds of roles beyond, you know, the folksy dad persona that he has. So it's definitely not for everyone, but I like this so much more than just a by-the-numbers biopic. Tesla, written and directed by Michael Almereda, starring Ethan Hawke, Kyle MacLachlan, and Eve Hewson, rated PG-13. You can see it on the big screen of the Mission Tiki Drive-In Theater in Montclair, uh, widely available on on on-demand platforms. Coup 53, a documentary about the 1953 coup to overthrow the Iranian prime minister at the time. The film is directed by Taghi Amirani. Angie? So this one I really liked. It's a documentary with the crackle of a spy thriller. On one level, it's about how the CIA and MI6 secretly stage a coup against Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh to reinstate the Shah so that they could have greater access to Iran's oil. But then layered on top of that is a story of how this documentary got made as we watched the director span the globe, tracking down firsthand witnesses and government files and buried interviews. And it's all very exciting. It's also a really personal subject for the director uh, since he grew up in Iran under the Shah. And I think that immediately gives Coup 53 a level of interest. You're primed to care about the story because it's being told through the eyes of someone for whom this is all really meaningful. But then as he starts digging around, it takes on the momentum of a thriller and there's a secrecy and danger uh, and urgency, which gives the film a lot of excitement, but also understands just how enormous and shocking and infuriating the news in this documentary is. So he combines a lot of footage from the uh, BBC documentary from years ago, with some more current, um, with some more current interviews with some with the uh, with experts and with people who were involved, and uh, I think the Welchers and Talking Heads really give a sense both of what it was like as it was playing out and also what it means in a greater historical context. What led up to it, what happened as a result of it, and even for someone who doesn't who comes into the documentary with only a vague idea of what happened there, I think it I think it makes it really easy to understand. And not only that, but makes you really curious to learn more, which I think is probably exactly the idea. We're talking about the documentary Coup 53. Charles? Well, I half agree with Angie. I think the parts of the film that are actually about how the British plotted this coup to get back their essential monopoly on Iranian oil 
And then once Eisenhower and the Republicans came in, they went along with it where Truman had said no. Uh, those parts are fascinating. But I got so impatient with the filmmaker showing himself in scene after scene, obviously staged, st striking a pose somewhere between Indiana Jones and Nancy Drew. Oh, here's someone with a whole a whole file uh, cabinet full of material. Oh, this folder looks interesting. What do you suppose is in it? I wanted to smack him and tell him to get back to the subject that is so interesting about how the Western powers did this to get oil, to get that money. Uh, we're willing to trample on the Iranian people and their wishes. We're willing to go outside international law. And I wish he'd explored in more depth something that gets kind of a, a facile note at the end that did this set the pattern for other U.S. and British actions against other governments in third world countries. So half of the film is really compelling and half of it I just found frustrating. Coup 53, the documentary directed by Tagi Amirani, uh, who, by the way, you'll hear from later this hour on Film Week as John Horn interviews the director as well as the co-writer Walter Murch of the documentary. You can see it on the UCLA Film and TV Archive Virtual Cinema, on Lemley's Virtual Cinema, and on LA Creative Pro User Group Virtual Cinema. Coup 53, the documentary is unrated. The drama Words on Bathroom Walls stars Charlie Plummer and Taylor Russell. The film is directed by Thor Freudenthal. Nick Nevada is the screenwriter. Christy. I really like this movie, and I was really impressed with its ability to approach the subject of mental illness in a way that is sensitive and thoughtful and insightful without ever being mawkish or maudlin. It is based on a young adult novel by Julia Walton, and it superficially has kind of some of the YA tropes that we're used to, you know, a couple of really great looking teenage misfits who find each other and understand each other in a way that nobody ever has before. And they're, they're really hyperverbal in the way that they connect with each other, which is, you know, unrealistic, but charming nonetheless. So Charlie Plummer plays this young man, he's a senior in high school, who has schizophrenia. And about what happens to him when he gets kicked out of his public school and has to go to this Catholic school. He connects with Taylor Russell, who was so great in Waves last year. She really builds on the promise of Waves. And, um, and they have this great connection. She's sort of like the, the brilliant poor girl at the, at the Catholic school. And it's how they come to understand each other. It's how this young man's mental illness manifests itself and how he struggles to keep it at bay. Um, medication's not working, and he, he sees various personalities all around him, one of whom is played by Anastasia Robb, one of whom is played by Devin Bostick, who is very funny. And so it depicts his inner state in an external way that is always clever, yet it makes sense. It is tangible in a way that's hard to achieve, I think, with such an interior kind of complicated um, phenomenon. I think it's really going to help people. All right. A lot of people to talk about a subject that seems scary, and uh, it's it's really thoughtful and, and quite moving. That sounds great. Words on bathroom walls. The drama, it's rated PG-13 from director Thor Freudenthal. You can see it at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. 
Coming up, many more films with our three critics joining us on Film Week on KPCC, the KPCC app, and kpcc.org. It's so good to have you with us on Film Week here on KPCC, whether you're listening to 89.3 or listening on the KPCC app or take it as a podcast. It's available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm joined this week by critics Angie Hahn, Christy Lemire, and Charles Solomon. Next up is the horror film Train to Busan Presents Peninsula, a sequel to the earlier movie Train to Busan. Uh, the film is directed by Yoon Sung Ho. Angie, what do you think? So, Busan, sorry, Train to Busan Peninsula is a sequel to Train to Busan, but it's not really a direct continuation of the same story from the first one. It's not the same characters or anything. It is the same director and writers, but completely different characters and a completely different vibe, which I honestly found kind of disappointing. So the first film worked really well for me as a tight little thriller with a small group of passengers in this enclosed space uh, and some really clear thematic through lines that added a bit more depth to all the gory fun. This one, the sequel goes much, much, much bigger. It's much more like World War Z with some Mad Max Fury Road and some Fast and the Furious mixed in with much more expensive CG, much more explosive plot twists. But it's also a reminder that more isn't always more. It's uh, the story is is so the focus is so diffuse that you don't really get a good sense of what this world looks like. It's at, at first it's interesting to kind of see how things have progressed in Korea since the events of the first film, but then it starts to feel very surface level because you're always bouncing around from place to place. And the film seems so much more focused on these big action set pieces than on anything else. And, And then on top of that, even the action, it looks good, but it gets really repetitive the 47th time that a character is clearly in mortal danger and about to die and then a car comes screeching up and this person is saved. So it's not it's not necessarily bad or boring. I was never I was never bored. I was reasonably entertained, but it just doesn't really feel that special, which again, I, I I'm sorry to keep comparing it to the last film, but it just feels like a letdown after how unique the first one was. We're talking about the South Korean film Train to Busan presents Peninsula action horror film Christy. I actually was bored after a while. Because it's nearly two hours long, and as Angie said, it gets so repetitive. Um, well, one thing that was so cool about Train to Busan was how effectively they used the claustrophobia of being stuck in this enclosed space and um, clever ways that they used every bit of that train. And here they've expanded it, and now we're out in the outside world, and it becomes very generic. I mean, it, it's got this fundamental through line of all these zombie apocalypse survivors kind of trying to outsmart each other to get this bag, this giant duffel bag full of American cash. And that's the MacGuffin. Really, it's all just a, a reason to see bodies being strewn about. Um, Angie mentioned one of the things that keeps happening over and over again. The other thing that they go to way too many times is like trucks or cars or vans plowing through like a of zombie bodies and there's like a thump 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 in the sound design that the first time it's like dude that was gnarly and then you see it like 10 more times and we're like okay we get it zombies are going to show up in front of some vehicle and the car is going to plow through them and it's going to be noisy and bloody and um, it becomes really numbing and 
boring after a while. But the two girls who are in it, the teenage girl and her little sister, are kind of spunky and funny and adorable, and I want to see a movie about them. Train to Busan presents Peninsula from director Yoon Sung Ho. South Korean action horror film is rated R. You can see it at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. The crime drama Cutthroat City is set in New Orleans. It stars Shamik Moore. It's directed by Riza Christie. This has a really rich sense of place and just an incredible cast of supporting actors. The premise itself is kind of familiar, but it's executed in a way that has great style and a richness and a specificity to the language. It takes place in New Orleans just after Hurricane Katrina. It's about these four childhood friends who are struggling, who are not getting the help from FEMA that they need. Um, One's already a drug dealer. One's an aspiring artist who can't find work. And it's how they turn to crime. They turn to this local neighborhood crime boss played chillingly by T.I., and um, how they they go to him to pull off just this one job, this one job, of course, and it's not going to be anything else besides that. And, of course, that all goes horribly wrong as, as they get tied up with all the various neighborhood characters. Um, this is our second Ethan Hawke film of the week. He plays a former cop turned city council member, but of course he is dirty. Um, Wesley Snipes is in it in a great showy role. Terrence Howard is very good. At- wow guy called The Saint. It's an incredible embarrassment of riches. It's a little too long. It meanders, but it's got tremendous vibe and sense of place. What a cast. Cutthroat City, the crime drama we're talking about from director Riza Shamik Moore stars Angie. Yeah, I agree with a little lot of Christy said. It has a really great sense of its world and the characters that live in it and also how things run in it. And the timing of it that it's set right after Hurricane Katrina gives a little bit of an edge. There's some social commentary here about how the city's poor and black residents were being not just left behind, but actively pushed out and not just during and after Katrina, but for years before that. It's a movie in part about how gentrification for these characters is its own major disaster. But I do think it gets buried a little bit under all the other stuff Cutthroat City is trying to do. It starts out like a heist story, then it becomes an on-the-run story, and then along the way it goes into all these different paths about about corruption and the criminal underground and law enforcement and all that and it's and after a while it starts to get a little bit muddled uh i do think that shamik moore uh, does a lot of does a lot to really ground the emotions of this film he is someone who in films like dope and spider-man and even let it snow that kind of fluffy Netflix movie is an actor who really projects a sense of innocence and decency and provokes almost a protective instinct. You really want things to work out for this guy, even when he screws up, even when other people screw things up for him. So I think that really helps, but there's just so much happening here to the point that it's, it becomes really easy to lose track of who is is double crossing who and who is paying off whom and why and all that. So it's fun moment to moment. And I think it has a really strong sense of place and character, but the overall piece is a little bit messy. Movies Cutthroat City, it's rated R, the screenplay written by PJ, uh, PG, excuse me, Cuccieri, uh, and uh, the films at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry, Cutthroat City. Uh, the drama The 24th is directed and co-written by Kevin Wilmot. Uh, the film stars Trey Byers. Christy. 
This is a really solid movie, and it takes place 100 years ago, but unfortunately feels extremely relevant today. It is about the true story of this all-black battalion in the army um, and these, these soldiers 100 years ago in the early part of World War I, um, how they were assigned to help protect this um, this outpost that was being built, this base that was being built, and how they clash with the white racist Houston police officers who are also in the neighborhood. Um, Trey Byers stars in it and co-wrote the script with Kevin Wilmot, and he is discriminated against within his own ranks because he is lighter skinned, because he's studied at the Sorbonne, because he reads a lot, and he um, so other folks you know view him as being too erudite and uh, and above them. But they all kind of come to trust each other and, and rally around each other as the tensions really rise. Um, Kevin Wilmot, who directed this and, and co-wrote this, has worked with Spike Lee quite a bit. He co-wrote The Five Bloods and Chirac, for example. And so you have a sense of the kind of banter you see in some of Spike Lee's films in which, you know, there's pointed commentary, but also some some great humor, some honest and, and unexpected humor. It is really, really earnest is the only thing. Um, I wish it took some more chances, but it's solidly made. We're talking about the drama The 24th from director and co-screenwriter Kevin Wilmot, Angie. Yeah, I think solid is exactly the right word to describe this movie. Uh, one, What Kevin Wilmot does really well here and what he's done in some of the other projects that Christy listed is put you in the headspace of the frustration and sorrow and anger that these soldiers felt as black Americans who are here because they want to serve their country in World War One, but can't but then the white people around them can't even be bothered to treat them like human beings, let alone soldiers who might be worthy of their respect, who might be trying to fight this uh, this war overseas. And, you know, knowing that that's a problem is one thing, but feeling it is another. And that's that's where he really shines. It's not just the more obvious violent acts of racism that get under the skin, but the littler things like the casual disrespect or in one uh, scene. The uh, colonel who's leading this regiment, the white colonel, played by Thomas Hayden Church, decide, takes a takes a job opportunity and for a while leaves behind these soldiers that he had promised to protect, even though he knows how screwed they'll be without him. And just things like that are gutting. Um, and I think Trey, Trey Byers does a does a really interesting work with this character who is fundamentally an optimist who comes to Houston really believing that he can make a difference and change the way white Americans see black people. And following his arc as he kind of realizes how things really are and seeing how it leads into this really horrific riot uh, really is really is really moving and really interesting. Um, there's also a really lovely, if slightly underdeveloped subplot involving his romance with a local piano player um, played by Asia Naomi King, which gives you a window into the life he wanted and could have had. And that's really poignant. Um, uh, but I do feel like I do feel like what, as Christy said, I wish it had taken a few more risks. It feels a little bit too straightforward. I mean, you understand what's going on, you understand how it's happening, all of that, uh, and it's not exactly subtle. So it's not mm-hmm. like it's a movie where you're going to come away having no idea what it was supposed to, what the point was supposed to be. But there aren't any surprising depths here. There is not. There's not a lot of like quirk or kind of you know like flourishes or color or anything like that. And it's there's not really a striking visual style to speak of either. So it just ends up feeling a little bit, 
you know, as Chrissy said, solid, but not necessarily uh, more than that. The 24th, the drama we're talking about, it's available on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and uh, on multiple video-on-demand platforms. The film is unrated. Desert One, a documentary from documentarian Barbara Koppel, uh, takes us back to the 1980 rescue attempt of the American hostages being held in Iran. Angie. Yeah, so unlike some of her other works like Harlan County, USA, Desert One is a more conventionally structured documentary that combines archive footage and talking head interviews, and it's about Operation Eagle Claw, which was a failed attempt by the U.S. to rescue the hostages during the Iran hostage crisis. And the story itself is inherently kind of ex- kind of exciting and interesting. It's it, it's also a little bit unusual in that it's a story of, of a really big military failure from a country, the United States, that is not traditionally known for loving to dwell on our big military failures. And one thing that she, one thing I really admired about this film is she really, she's so thorough in her research. She gets such a wide array of perspectives, even ones that directly contradict each other. And that really helps. So for example, there's a, she, she contrasts how one of the hostages said he was treated with how the hostage takers claim the hostages were treated. Uh, And that really, that really gives this, uh, the film, you know, that saying that history is written by the victors. I think that, that she really kind of explores that with all these different perspectives, because you get to understand the ways that who's telling the story really shapes how what we think the story is and how we understand it, um, and yet and it's and it's also really moving to see how see these people talk about their own experiences, especially since even 40 years on, it's clear that this has really left a lasting impact on them. And yet, despite all of that, it felt a little bit dry to me. There's a lot of the, having a lot of perspectives is good, but it also means that you just have a long series of talking heads at some points. I wish that there had been a little bit more urgency in these stories or maybe a little bit deeper exploration of some of the bigger themes that are kind of hovering around this story. Um, that said, I mean, I, it was worth watching and I think it especially works really well as a companion piece to Coup 53, which we talked about earlier, since since they tell stories at the at either end of the Shah's reign from two very different points of view. And you can really draw a direct line from the events of Coup 53 to the events of Desert One. Desert One, the documentary was short on time. Christy, quick thought on the film. I found it totally fascinating. It's an incredible array of interview subjects, everyone from Carter and Mondale to the hostages themselves to the Delta Force members who tried to uh, to pull off this mission. Fascinating to see a story about a failure. You can learn more from your failures than the raw, raw successes. And Barbara Koppel is, of course, a, a veteran and does this brilliantly. The film is Desert One. It's unrated, available now on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. It'll be available on on-demand platforms in about a week and a half. Uh, also, The August Virgin this week, uh, a film set in Madrid, Spanish movie. Angie, quick thought on it. I really like this one. It's a dramedy about a 30-something woman named Eva who decides to stay in Madrid during the month of August as part of this journey of self-discovery. And it is the perfect movie to watch in August when it's 100 degrees outside as it's been in L.A. because it captures that languid summer so well. And what it's really about is it's one of those films about those moments in your life where maybe nothing dramatic happens, but you know that these little day-to-day moments are going to build up. And it's a, it's a movie about transformation, but the transformation is very subtle and sensitive and so well played by the lead actress uh, It's also Arana. So the, I think this is a really lovely film and worth watching. The August Virgin, it's directed by Jonas Treba. It's unrated from Spain. You can see it on Lemley's Virtual Cinema, The August Virgin. Our Film Week critics this week 
Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon, and Angie Han. Coming up, we'll hear from John Horn of KPCC, Hollywood, the sequel to podcast. A couple great interviews from John coming up on Film Week. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Larry Mantle. We've got a John Horn double feature on Film Week. Later, we'll hear an excerpt of the latest episode of his podcast, Hollywood the Sequel. He talks with comedian and full frontal host, Samantha B. She talks about how she wants her series to be an agent of change in Hollywood. But first, earlier on Film Week, our critics reviewed the new documentary, Coup 53. It details Operation Ajax, a coup staged by the CIA and MI6 in 1950. It overthrew the Iranian prime minister. John Horn spoke with the director, Taghi Amirani, and co-writer Walter Murch. And John started by asking Taghi, who grew up in Iran, how he first heard about the coup. I think I first heard about the coup before knowing it was a coup by simply hearing Mossadegh's name whispered in late-night conversations amongst the, uh, my family and the older. You know, the older generation would sit around into the small hours and talk about this and that and gossip. And I'm, I must have been seven. Uh, I've worked it out now. Because in the middle of the, the, the conversation, they would da, 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 normal, normal speak, normal speech, and then they whisper, Mossadegh. And I thought, why am I... My parents and my uncles and granddad all whispering this one word. What is this thing that they can't say loudly? Uh, it kind of embedded itself in the back of my mind. And I've worked out that must have been the day that he died and the word had got out and through, through community, through word of mouth, because it wasn't announced publicly. Big, big, it was nothing, nothing was made of the death of this amazing man, you know, the first democratic prime minister who kind of represented you know, secular democratic Iran. And they whispered his name because it was not, not to be done. Um, so it got there when I finally grew up and found out what it was, who he was, what the story was. Um, I became a filmmaker. I made some 30-odd documentaries for television uh, because I wasn't quite ready and capable enough to tackle something as big and complicated and monumental as this, both historically and the weight of history and both, both also as a filmmaker. There is a search for an MI6 agent named Norman Derbyshire. So, Taggy, who is Norman and why is he so central to this story? Right. So this is one of the miracles of research and the gift of serendipity and just dogged determination uh, brought on by the fact that we had no money, nobody funded it. So we we spent more time researching. Uh, Imagine you're telling the most significant story about your country's political fortunes and misfortunes. And and you start thinking, we're we're going to tell the story of four days in 1953, this four days of the coup. That's, That's how it began for me. And, and then as you plow through material and footage and papers and interviewees, you suddenly find, wow, the man who actually ran this operation, who masterminded it, he collaborated with the American agent, Donald Wilbur, and they wrote the plan, the first draft of this idea of the coup together. And he then was on the ground for a long time, setting the foundations for the coup. He'd been to Iran from the age of 19. He knew Iran better than anybody else. Spoke the language too, right? He spoke fluent Persian. Uh, he was on the street. You know, you mix with people. He kind of understood the psyche of Iranians. When There's one line 
in the interview that we recreated with the great Rafe Fiennes in the film, he says, that was a correct reading of the Persian mob character. He understood Iranian so well, he knew what an Iranian mob would act and react like in a given situation. That's insight. We're talking with Taggy Amrani and Walter Murch about their documentary, Coup 53. Walter, you have worked on some very complicated films. Apocalypse Now comes to mind as an editor. What was it like assembling this movie and finding the story, given all of the different elements that you're trying to wrestle into one movie? We had 532 hours of material, which is um, almost two and a half times the amount of material we had on Apocalypse Now. On Apocalypse, there were three editors. Here, there was one editor, and it was it was me, Tagi, and my uh, associate editor, uh, who were just it was just the three of us. There was no studio involved, so we were free to roam across this vast. Uh, Forbidding landscape. I mean, when you think of the complications of all of this and how to do it justice, and before the Derbyshire story emerged, we were following some other leads. Uh, there are there are significant other interviews in this film with uh, the the man who was in charge of security for Mossadegh, who was shooting back at the tanks that were shooting at uh, Mossadegh on the evening of the nineteenth of August. And the Shah's uh, ambassador to the United States, who was the son of the general who pushed Mossadegh off the cliff and became the prime minister in Mossadegh. So we have him uh, as well. So we have both sides of this, this complicated story. But when, when the Derbyshire ghost, in a sense, uh, materialized and became a physical being in the film, that that definitely provided the spine uh, among al- along which the other parts of the story could diverge. Taggy, the overthrow in 1953 of the democratically elected leader of Iran certainly paved the way for the Shah, and you could say the Shah paved the way for Ayatollah Khomeini and what happened in the revolution of 1978 and 1979. If you were to draw a connection between 1950s 1953 Iran, and not just Iran today, but the Middle East, how would you define that best in terms of what happened then and where we are now? It, it definitely is a straight line. Uh, there's no question in my mind. Uh, uh, Mossadegh never died in people's memories. Uh, the coup marked people. I think the coup is still a bit a scar that hasn't healed, uh, a wound that hasn't healed. And so uh, the most telling uh, story about the the influence of the coup in the revolution is that three weeks after the revolution, uh, still mayhem and chaos and nothing had really kind of taken hold properly. It was the anniversary of Mossadegh's death. And over a million people marched from Tehran to his village. That's about 80 miles uh, northwest of Tehran, uh, some you know got out got out of buses. There was a traffic jam and walked through fields to get there. This is a winter winter's winter's landscape, and they went to pay their respects to this man. Uh, the, the the longest avenue in Iran, the most beautiful avenue in in Tehran, uh, from the foothills of the uh, Alborz Mountains to the deep south, uh, was called Pahlavi after the Pahlavi dynasty. Immediately after the revolution, it was named Mossadegh. The the inst- reinstallment of the Shah. Uh, was 
basically the beginning of his rule as an absolute monarch. He, there was a battle between the executive branch of government. You know, Iran is a constitutional monarchy. That's how it was shaped until the Islamic Republic. So the, the, the monarch, the king or the queen, reigns, sits on the throne and does kingy things or queeny things. And the prime minister runs the country. The Shah wanted to reign and rule. He was trying to emulate his father, who was a very uh, authoritarian, very tough soldier made king. And, and that's where the conflict came between Mossadegh and the Shah. With Mossadegh out of the way, the Shah was left free to become the absolute monarch, rule and reign. There was no political party per se. There was, uh, Walter says it beautifully, there were two parties in Iran from 53 to uh, 79, the Yes Party and the Yes Sir Party. And I think at one stage he just got rid of the Yes Party. Um, I grew up under the Shah, rules, uh, rule of the Shah. I went to a school where most of my teachers were political activists uh, you know, working against the, the Pahlavi regime. Uh, we were scared of reading certain books. Books would be smuggled into the class and passed on the desk and we'd take them home, read them and pass them to the next person. My teachers were arrested by Savak. They would disappear for once in a while and the headmaster would come and say, Mr. Zabihi, your math teacher is on holiday. And we knew that was code for him. He's in prison, uh, you know, being questioned or manhandled. So that was the environment in which I grew. So most of the people who were involved in the revolution, one way or another, were imprisoned by the Shah or tortured by the Shah. And um, that's, where we, that's where we are. The revolution kind of created a kind of a, a politicized Islam. It kind of, it was, its mission was to export revolution. That was the early days of the revolution. Let's export this thing. So it, you know, it spilled into Afghanistan. It, 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 they, with Iran in chaos after the revolution, Saddam Hussein saw his opportunity, encouraged by America and the West, to invade Iran. And that led to the eight-year bloody war, the most brutal war. It's very much like a First World War kind of war men in trenches dying. And that went on for eight years. Uh, so those are the consequences. The hostages were taken. Uh, I don't condone taking hostages, but the hostages were taken from the American embassy because the Iranian students thought, wait, the Shah has just escaped. He's been hopping from country to country. No country would have him. Britain, Britain wouldn't have him. Uh, America wouldn't have him. He went to Panama. He went to all over the place. He ended up in Egypt. For a brief moment, he came to America for medical treatment. He was very sadly dying of cancer. And, and the moment he arrived in America, the Iranians went crazy. And they thought, wait, last time this happened, he left. He bailed out and went to Rome. They brought him back in a coup. And that coup was orchestrated from the basement of the American embassy. They're going to do it again. They took the hostages to stop another coup happening. I don't condone it. I don't condone taking hostages. Host embassies are sovereign soil of the country. But that's why we had the hostage crisis. Uh, that's why we're in a mess we are. That hostage crisis, you know, created the, the, the poisonous relationship between America and Iran, which we are living with to this day. John Horn, host of the KPCC LAist podcast, Hollywood, the sequel, talking with the director of Coup 53, Tagi Amirani, and co-writer Walter Murch. Coming up, John's back with us. We'll hear some of his latest podcast episode. He speaks with comedian and full frontal host Samantha Bee. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Back in a minute. You're listening to Film Week here on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. We continue with our John Horn double feature by sharing an excerpt of John's latest episode of the podcast, Hollywood, the sequel. 
This week, one of his guests, comedian and host of the TBS show Full Frontal, Samantha Bee. She starts by talking about whether her show could and should return to production with no studio, no audience, and the staff working from home. There was a moment where I was like, "Do we? should we do a show? But then we were like, well, we should try because this is going to go on for a really long time. And do we really not want to be saying our piece during this time, this big lead up to an election, this huge pandemic, like we're a topical news show. There's never been a larger story than this thing that's happening right now to all of us. So we should plant a flag in this somehow. I think we can do it. And we just started lightly filming some content in the backyard. I'm Samantha Bee, and I'm just hanging out at my house, fully made up. You know, if there's one takeaway from the videos the other late-night hosts put out, it's that they have incredible homes. But I can do you one better. I've got a woodshed. Why? Because I've been preparing for something like this for years. So now We have this big backyard that's quite forested. It seemed like the perfect backdrop. We thought we could do things in a lo-fi way, you know, literally just using the sun as the light that we used. So... We didn't have, like, hung lights or any... There's no electricity back there, so everything's on batteries. I'm going to give you daily tips for how to survive and thrive while also social distancing. This is Being at Home. And we got everybody on board, and once we had this proof of concept, the network was like, you should try. And everybody at the show, we all wanted to just try to make a show because... This is what we do. I mean, this is literally what we do. And what are we going to do if we're not making a show? Do you think that's fundamentally different than before the pandemic? That question of what is and is not funny, what you can and cannot add to the conversation? Yeah, I think it is different. I mean, we've always, listen, we've always wrestled with like material that no one else had any interest in making comedy with. That's just, that's nothing new. But this is like global anxiety and this, the specter of the pandemic is that's i mean obviously that's wildly different sounds like you have some homeschooling going on yeah we're, there's a lot of education happening right now <laughs> hi welcome to full frontal i'm samantha b protesters are taking a stand against the horrors of police brutality and to show how not brutally violent they are the police have responded with absolutely brutal violence. When you were thinking about what you're going to do on a certain episode, obviously you're choosing a topic and then you're choosing what it is you're going to say about it. And I was just watching your episode about police brutality against black Americans. And at the end of that episode, you said their names, which is, you know, reciting the names of black Americans who have died at the hands of the police. We also need to be talking about Tony McDade, David McAtee, Michael Lorenzo Dean, Eric Reason, Atatiana Jefferson. So when you're thinking about how you give, you know, some sort of shape or commentary or even an occasional laugh to something that isn't really funny, how do you try to figure out what that balance is and what your path is as a storyteller and a comedian to share that information? Well, that is a long process, you know. That is not just Sam B. like out there on her own. That's like that episode and every episode of the show represents the work of 65 to 70 people. You know what I mean? So that was the process can be agonizing. 
just frankly, it can be an agonizing process. And I would say that it was because, again, you're wrestling with these huge issues and the subject is death and brutality. And we've, you know, what we've all witnessed. So getting it exactly right is something that we're so, it's such a like curated, thought out moment in the show. Um, and I worry a lot, you know, and it's very different also to perform it in the forest to my husband. Like it's different from, you know, there's no feedback really. So that's a very different experience too. And just birds are kind of chirping in the background and it's very, very quiet. And so we think long and hard about every episode, but particularly in those episodes that are responding to something massive that has happened or is happening or something that requires just the right kind of approach. One of the things that has happened across the country as the Black Lives Matter movement has really kind of permeated the way that we see ourselves, the way we see our jobs. Everybody is reexamining all of their beliefs and their behaviors. And something that may happen out of this is that the entertainment business, TV, film, however you want to define it, is going to ask some hard questions about its own behavior. Sure. And I'm wondering if you think, A, that will happen, and B, if it does, what are the kinds of questions that need to be asked, and how can entertainment start to address its own history and its own shortcomings? I welcome these changes in these conversations, for sure. I think, like, you know, even I look at my own leadership team and I don't have, you know, I don't have an executive producer who's black, indigenous, person of color. Like, I need to look at that within my own show. Diversity has always been something we've thought about in every single hire and every single moment of the show. But even we can do better. And if we can do better, that means everybody can do a lot better. So it's really putting voices in positions of leadership, like at every level of the production that's so vital to making the kind of changes that need to be made. Um, It's like when we started the show, too, when we started the show, I had this big lofty goal that we were going to start a big mentorship program at the show. Because, you know, when you're trying to hire and and you have diversity in your mind, you really have to reach into other, you have to work harder. You have to really work harder to recruit the right people for the jobs. So it was such a point of focus for us. And I really wanted to make a mentorship program that like accompanied that goal. And it was season one of a show. We didn't know what we were doing. Everybody was so strapped. Like it was so stressful just trying to make a show every week that that goal really fell by the wayside. And then years passed and we never really came back to it. So this actually has been a really great wake up moment continuing in that mission but also materializing this goal that always was in the back of my mind but not really possible now it's possible and it has to be possible for everybody comedian and host of full frontal on tbs samantha b you can hear the full episode of hollywood the sequel the podcast also including an interview with rami youssef comedian and star of his hulu comedy series rami all available on your favorite podcast platform or at las.com slash podcasts, where you can also see the full slate of podcasts from LAist and KPCC. Thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a great weekend.